You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Way back in 2012, we covered the Japanese entities known as yokai. Those supernatural creatures represented a broad category of monsters. In this episode, we'll be going back to Japan to look at yurai, what we would call ghosts in Western lore. It's October... Halloween's coming, and what could be more appropriate than learning more about ghosts and creatures from around the world? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're going to be learning about some ghost lore from Japan. I'm trying to get more coverage of monsters from around the world, and I'm looking forward to many monsters which I've been wanting to cover, such as the Rakshasas of India, the Naga from Southeast Asia, and the Mapinguari of South America. We also have some more coverage of witches and magic coming up soon. And we're doing another crossover Halloween special with Archie Fantasy's podcast as well. So lots of good monster stuff, lots of good science, lots of good content coming up. You know what's making that possible? The generous support of Patreon donations. Monster Talk takes a lot of time and work, and your donations make it possible for Karen and I to justify that effort to our spouses and our family. We're doing our first Patreon ever goal, and if we can get to $800 in donations per episode... We will commit to getting you four episodes a month. I can't promise that'll be one a week, 
but it will be for a month to the best of our abilities. So if you'd like to get that much regular content from the show, the fastest way to make that happen is to hop over to monstertalk.org forward slash support and sign up at Patreon to help us out. We already have some exclusive Patreon-only content there, and our Patreon episodes come out before our regular episode feed. You'll also enjoy things like episodes with unbleeped cursing. Okay, enough begging. Let's get to the Monster Talk. Now, I noticed we, we have um, a little bit of a bio written for you, but would you like to introduce yourself? So my name is Christopher Harding. I'm a senior lecturer in Asian history at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And I work especially on Japan and on India. How did you pick those areas of interest? That's a good question. I suppose, I don't know how you guys learn history in the States, but we focus at school a lot on the UK um, and on Europe. And so by the time I went to university, I was a little bit bored of that. And I wanted to go elsewhere. So first I went to India. This is kind of metaphorically in, a, in an armchair. Went to India and then Japan just because they were the furthest away. I suppose that's one thing. They were the furthest away. And also they had really interesting um, religious cultures. Because I grew up as a, a Catholic from an Irish Catholic family. And so you, you don't really escape religion when you grow up as a Catholic. Um, and in Japan seem to be, they seem to have really interesting and very different takes on these things to the ones I was used to. I grew up in Australia and we had the same thing too. For Throughout high school, there was a focus on Australian history. So I don't know what it's like here in the US. I guess it's the same. Place. Well, no, no. We, we try to carefully balance our education across a world culture and take into account that every country is important and has its own unique... No, no, we just talk about America. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I thought so. I was like, what? Okay, so Chris... You're a lecturer in Asian history, and you specialize in modern Indian and Japanese history. So how did you develop an interest in ghosts? I suppose two things. One is, um, I guess some of your listeners will be familiar with uh, Hokusai, the great wave, that, you know, that big iconic image. Um, it's the artwork, the woodblock print artwork of Japan. I suppose roughly the 1700s and the 1800s, the way they draw their uh, ghosts and ghouls and, and skeletons. It's just fascinating. These beautiful images of huge skeletons looming over cowering samurai below them. Um, and it's just beautiful. It really draws you in. And I really wanted to know what the world view is that kind of underpins that sort of art. I felt I was looking at it and I enjoyed the way it looked, but I didn't really understand what I was seeing. So I suppose mm -hmm. that's one thing. Um, and the second thing, yeah, well, probably as I was saying a minute ago, um, you grow up in one religious system and you really, really want to know them about others. And sometimes a place like Japan, to really understand it, how, how people see life and death and the meaning of both, to look at their folk stories and their legends and the supernatural, that kind of gets you straight into the way people see things. So I suppose a combination of those two things. I think we're primarily going to focus on Japan today. Hmm. But we, we so, have talked about uh, yokai, uh, in a previous episode, and we we touched on the concept of yuri yuri. How do you say that? Yure. Uh, yure. And so we we lightly touched on those uh, ideas. But can you kind of introduce us to the concept of yure and what that means, uh, uh, and maybe in in comparison to uh, Western style ghost lore? Ah, okay, yeah. So yure basically means uh, faint 
spirit. Um, and it really comes down to, I think, and this is where Japan and the West possibly differ a little bit. Um, the kind of in Japan, the thinking used to be, and it still is to some extent now, that the basic social unit is a family and you take care of one another. So towards the end of your life and then just after you die, it's a really strong responsibility on your family to uh, look after you towards the end of your life, of course, the same in the West, but after you die to go through the proper rituals to make sure that your um, spirit can go to the next world. It's what the Japanese call um, Anoyo, the other world, that your spirit can go there and it can rest. And for most people that happens, but for people that don't get that, their family doesn't look after them in the right way or they die suddenly or violently or as a result of you know treacherous behavior by somebody. For souls like that, they remain seriously unsettled. They have a kind of powerful grudge against this world and that that grudge acts as a kind of bridge that brings them back into this world as a yure, as one of these faint spirits and they are always on a mission and they are always deadly serious and very often um, they win and there's something about that there's something about that sense of, of yure in Japan as being much much more powerful than human beings in most cases and they are relentless in pursuing this particular quest, whatever it is their particular quest is, there's very little room for it being kind of ironic or um, postmodern or kind of comedically ghoulish. You know, it's really, really serious business. And I suppose that's one of the ways in which even now ghosts in Japan feel a bit different from some of their Western counterparts. And uh, Chris, I found out about you through an article that I came across online through uh, Eon about Japanese oh. ghosts dwelling in the spirit of their times. And uh, in that article, you'd written about the tsunami in Japan back in 2011 and how this led to a spate of ghost sightings and, and ghost stories. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. I suppose um, the really big thing to appreciate about that tsunami, this was an earthquake, a tsunami, a nuclear meltdown in Japan, the 11th of March, 2011. Um, and it was the closest thing Japan has had to a 9-11, I suppose. It's a really, really traumatic event. Upwards of 20,000 people, roughly 20,000 people are um, now known to be dead or missing. This huge torrent of water just surging inland, wow. wiping things away, wiping bridges away, wiping people away. Um, and the, the hours and the days and the months after that were just an enormous trauma especially for the people in the region, this is the northeast of Japan, but also the rest of the country, you know, for a while, they didn't know how bad the nuclear meltdown might be at um, Fukushima power plant. There were secret plans made in Tokyo to try to evacuate the entire city, which if you think about it is, is, is crazy, you know, a city of millions and people, they were thinking they might have to evacuate. It's this kind of shock to the national uh, system, basically, that these events produced. And it was after that, it took a few months, um, but by about September or so, um, 2011, people started to see um, their dead relatives. They mm -hmm. saw them in, in all sorts of strange situations. So people, just to give you a couple of examples, I suppose, um, people would see men and women walking along the beach in really, really heavy coats. And, you know, September in Japan is normally quite hot. Really heavy coats, their hair wet. They might try, and, um, they might try to hail a, a taxi. Um, and then they would disappear from the back seat of the taxi. They would try and ask strangers for a change of clothes. And someone once 
had people come to their door asking for a change of clothes. One person came to the door um, and the person whose home it was went away to find a change of clothes. When they came back to the door, there was a whole crowd of strangers, you know, all of them soaked to the skin, sopping wet, all saying, can we have a change of clothes? Mm. And these sightings have gone on and on um, in the years since. And for that region in Japan, it's it's odd. If that happened in Tokyo or Osaka, you know, one of these places that we associate with being really um, modern, you know, ultra-modern, even post-modern in Japan, it would be one thing. But up north, um, in this part of Japan, it's always been a kind of part of the country associated with um, the supernatural. And so for some people there, the thing that really struck me about it was for the people there who cited, and I've spoken to many of them, who saw these um, apparitions, their, their dead relatives, it seemed to them mostly to be entirely natural. And often, often it was very, very comforting as well. In a few cases, it was quite frightening. But in most cases, they just saw or felt the presence. And they say they felt immensely comforted by it. That's really interesting. I still want to get a better idea of how ghosts are viewed culturally. And I know it's probably more complicated than you can quickly explain. But I, I think in, in, in Western uh, culture... Ghosts, you know, serve a few different functions, or it seems like they do. There's, there's kind of different kinds of hauntings. There's the sort of grief apparitions when, when a, a loved one appears to you after they've died or around the time of their death. And then, um, there are like sort of residual hauntings where you see like the same sort of almost like a, a story being played out again and again and again. There's ghosts that are associated with folklore. Uh, things like the uh, the backseat ghosts, or you know, like a resurrection Mary. These these kind of uh, vanishing hitchhikers. Yeah, as the well. vanishing hitchhikers. So, so yeah. but so like there's different kinds of ghosts in in the West. But uh, I I think to some extent there there's like this relationship between uh, predominant Western religion and mm. and 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 how ghosts are viewed. Like because there's a there's questions about are are ghosts really uh you know uh, some part of uh, of of a human that's that's left behind or or are they recording or or what are they you know like are are they demonic so how how are they viewed culturally in in Japan like are there, I imagine there's more than one view of it but but I'm just trying to think of like I mean are they widely accepted uh you know it, it, that that's that's a broad question I know but it, maybe you have a, a lot to say about that maybe a little I don't know but <laughs> I just it was a long I, question. It's a long question, but as a, as a person from the from the West, I am really deeply interested in in how ghosts are viewed, what they represent culturally. Okay, that's a great question. I suppose um, maybe a few thoughts. One would be I remember, and this does I get to your point. I remember I gave a talk in a Japanese university when I was giving. I can't remember exactly what I was talking about, but it was something to do with. Um, Christianity and the view um, of the divine in Christianity, etc., etc. And there was a kind of silence at the end. Everyone looked really shocked. I thought, my God, this has gone down really badly. Um, and I asked people at the end of it, it does happen occasionally um, with these things, and I asked people at the end, I said, what, what was happening at the end? There was a really odd atmosphere in the room. It must have been about sort of 50, 60 people. And they said, it's just the way that you talk about the divine or about the supernatural. You have this sense of um, it being black and white and this I, it seemed from your talk as though as human beings we really know what the world is all about and we really have a clear understanding of it and to us we associate that with cults with religious cults to claim that degree of certainty about the way the world is and about the way the other world is a lot of people in japan find that quite scary they find it almost 
terrifying, in fact. And one of the things that ghosts, I think, does in Japan is they, they remind people that we really don't understand the world, that we really don't know the way the world is. And so if you ask people straight out, you know, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Often there'll be, I think, a degree of um, discomfort from people. They say, well, we really don't understand these things. But ghosts occupy this place between a world that we can be reasonably certain of, the kind of physical here and now, um, and a world that we know almost nothing about. So I suppose people talk about ghosts as kind of liminal figures in that sense. Um, and that's part of their prescience because people won't say, yes, I know all about ghosts. I know exactly what they're for and all the rest of it. Or um, I don't believe in ghosts at all. Most people, I think, occupy a kind of middle ground. You know, you can occasionally use ghosts as entertainment. Japan's got this great J-horror industry that we'll probably come back to a little bit later on. Um, but you'll always find this uh, area of doubt with people, which I don't always find in the in, in the west it's people often come down one side or the other don't they they say great is entertainment or it's a kind of um it's as you're saying it's when people are grieving somebody then they'll tend to see them but i i still have a basic scientific materialist view of the world and that's me um in japan there's a sense of doubt and i think ghosts really play into that sense of doubt and i think that's probably even true now so if you take a film like Ringu, for example, I don't know, we'll probably come back to film later, but the film like Ringu, which a lot of people in the States and Australia and elsewhere will have, will have heard of, um, people watching that in Japan, some of the power of that film, um, it's not just the kind of shock moments and the way the film's edited, it's actually the sense of the reality of, the probable reality of the supernatural, the reality of the unknown, and the sense that your behaviour towards others really can quite literally come back to haunt you and maybe that's you're talking about just one more point i suppose you're talking about the relationship probably with christianity um in the west you know the relationship between ghosts and and our religious systems in the west in japan it's probably quite similar um obviously two big religious systems in japan but just to talk about one of them um buddhism there's been a really powerful relationship between buddhism um and ghosts in japan so some of the earliest ghost stories were kind of hijacked by Buddhists in Japan, probably more than a thousand years ago, to try to, use, they're basically trying to use these ghost stories as a way of telling people um, how karma works. Basically, if you behave a certain way to other people, somehow that's going to come back on you. And you can't necessarily sit down with someone who's never been to school and go through a sutra with them or go through these fantastic, you know, complex philosophical ideas. But you can tell them a story about a man who treated his wife in this way and she died with a grudge and she came back and tormented him until he went mad that's a very effective way of saying here's how the world is um and japanese ghost stories have never lost that sense of seriousness i think it's quite hard to be ironic um about ghosts in japan because they maintain that connection with the moral order and that connection with a world that we don't really understand and we probably should treat with a certain amount of seriousness Hopefully that gives you a feel anyway. For, it it for, does. For I, oh, yeah. I feel like we probably ought to focus on just Japan for this interview. But you, <laughs> since you have studied in uh, India, I, I'm also very curious about uh, Indian views of, uh, of ghosts in their culture as well. And, you know, I'm in IT, you know, probably 70% of my company is, is uh, from India. And um, oh. so I, I have a lot of exposure, at least to, to southern India culture mm. but but even they don't talk much about ghosts and so most of my exposure to ghost lore from india has been through the occasional newspaper story or 
uh, that sort of thing. So I, I'm really, I, if you don't mind, I don't want to like derail us from the Japan discussion, but how how are ghosts viewed in India, especially in a in a culture that has concepts like uh, uh, reincarnation as as being a fairly common belief? Mm. I'd say probably there's one thing in common actually that India and Japan share, um, which is a sense that. The supernatural, the presence of the supernatural in everyday life um, is entirely natural. You know, it's actually even the word supernatural may not entirely make sense because we, we live in a landscape that's populated by other living human beings who we can see. But it's also populated by all sorts of other um, creatures and spirits who we can't see, but they're all naturally part of this world. We sort of share the world with them. So. For example, just to go back briefly to the Japanese case, this word anoyo, which means the other world or the world over there, it doesn't mean a world that's or doesn't always mean it's literally a world that's very, very far away. It's just a kind of different plane of reality that's more or less here with us now. And so in Indian, uh, in some uh, Indian cultures, because obviously India is a fantastically complicated place. Exactly, yeah. But some Indian cultures, uh, they share with um, Shinto, which is that second um, religious tradition I mentioned in Japan, a sense that, that life is coursing through everything, especially through nature, and that the spirits are, or the gods or the kami in, in Japanese, um, are always with us. So whereas in some extent in western culture it's relatively rare for a ghost to come and visit you and they might have a purpose and there'd be a story behind that um in japan and for some people in india because that's just how the landscape is uh it's entirely natural so it's that sense of constantly living with the supernatural in the presence of the supernatural that i think is something that japan traditionally shares um with parts of india the sheer normality of it i think you could say it's i think it's interesting uh there's so many people in India, and it's a big country, and it's uh, it's got so many uh, differences in language and culture across a single country. It's kind of difficult uh, coming from America to mm. kind of grasp that because, I mean, as much as we talk about the differences between states and other things, America is remarkably homogenous. I mean, really, really. We don't have a deep, long history here. But at the same time, it's multicultural and multilingual, which is pretty much what you were saying anyway. It is. But I mean, but at the same time, like, you know, the the dominant narrative in America is still tends to be a Judeo-Christian worldview, even though we have lots and lots of religion here and we talk about being a melting pot. But there's like it, it's pretty different from how it is in India uh, where if you have like, you know, you might have a religion that has 20 percent uh, uh, foothold in the population, but that represents hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> but I think anyway, that, that yeah, that, that that one thing that Japan and India share in common, I suppose, is that is that sense of uh, the landscape being alive with mm -hmm. energy and all sorts of different creatures. And I suppose maybe listeners to your podcast, if they're fans of, you know, it's the Studio Ghibli films, yeah, Hayao Miyazaki, these famous anime films um, in Japan, like Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke. Um, as, a, as, an, as a filmmaker, an anime maker, he really loves to depict landscapes and particularly nature. So forests and mountains and waterways that are just completely coursing um, with life and with all sorts of different life, you know, the natural and the supernatural, uh, completely side by side. So people wanted to get a, a sense of how people in Japan growing grow up thinking about the supernatural. They could do worse than watching um, a film like Spirited Away 
um, or Princess Mononoke. Um, I think they get a pretty immediate idea of these things uh, straight away. I think actually, just to give you one more example of how people think about these things, um, just strikes me as, as we're talking. There's a festival in Japan every year. It's their sort of um, festival of the dead, I suppose you could say. It's called Obong. Um, happens in late summer. And it's basically where uh, ancestors are thought for just a short period each year to return to this world, to be with their living relatives. In some sense, your ancestors are always thought about as looking out for you and looking over you. But for this one um, short period each year, they actually come back and you can spend time with them. And I was really shocked. First time I was there uh, in Japan for the Bong Festival, I was in Nagasaki. Um, and again, you know, thinking about someone who grew up as a Catholic, you, you have, there's a certain kind of care and silence and respect that comes when you talk about the dead and for example when you're in a graveyard we talk about the silence of the graveyard whatever in japan for the bond festival it was it struck me as almost a little bit disrespectful the first time i was there because people are in a graveyard kind of leaning on someone's headstone drinking a beer and they're playing music and they've got guitars out and they're singing and there's fireworks and i was saying you know, but these people are dead shouldn't we keep quiet and and, and shed a tip but they're basically having a party with their relatives who briefly come back. I'm not saying that every single person in that graveyard literally believed that their relative was visiting them again. They're not really, people aren't really interested in, is it this, is it that? But it's this big celebration anyway of the family, the living members with the deceased members all together, um, that really struck me as so different from the way we think about things in the West. And actually, you don't have to be there for more than a few minutes and it, it feels quite natural and it feels quite healthy. And I suppose that's one really big point of difference at the moment anyway, um, between Japan and the West on these things. So speaking of that, I was just so fascinated in reading your article and reading that story about the person who answers the door and someone who's uh, soaked and cold and asking for a change of clothes. And uh, so the, the owner of the house walks away to get some clothing, comes back, and then suddenly there's a group of people. Um, I just thought if that was a story in western culture it would probably be that the person came back and the individual had just disappeared so i just thought that was such an incredible difference in telling a story like that uh so just in, if you could tell us a little bit more about japanese ghost legends you write about the ubume i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that correctly but i wonder if you could tell us about a few of the popular ghost legends that you have in that, that there are in japan yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I think in terms of that storyline, just quickly, it's an interesting point you made about the expectation you might have of a Western version of that. Um, and I, I totally agree. I suppose one of the things, maybe I'm not quite understanding Western ghost stories well enough, but they seem generally to have some kind of clear resolution. Um, often in, in Japanese folk tales and in ghost stories as well, um, the resolution isn't entirely clear. If there's one thing that runs through a lot of them, it's someone um, coming back from the dead to either take revenge on somebody or to care for somebody or to punish somebody for basically mm -hmm. having been arrogant or greedy. You can tell the kind of the Buddhist moralizing that goes into these stories. Right. But, often, but often, often they end um, and you're not entirely sure what's happened. They're, they're often mm -hmm. quite open-ended. Um, so I guess to give you um, a couple, maybe one, the one that actually begins the Eon piece. So I really quickly give you that. It's probably just about a minute's worth. In sure. case you want to hear it. Um, so this is from um, the Legends of Tono in uh, 1910. This writer, this folklorist, put them all together. These stories are centuries old. Um, and this one really struck me because 
as you'll see, it had a resonance about 100 years later when a tsunami struck this same region. The region of Tonal um, is in, it's very, very close to where the, the tsunami struck um, in 2011. So this is the story, the kind of short version. It was a moonlit night in early summer, about a year on from the great tsunami. Because just to fill you in, there'd been a tsunami in Japan um, in the, uh, the late 1800s. As waves broke gently on a beach, half obscured in fog, Fukuji could just about make out two people walking along, a woman and a man. Fukuji frowned. The woman was definitely his wife. He called out her name. She turned and smiled. Fukuji now saw who the man was too. He'd been in love with Fukuji's wife before Fukuji had married her. Both of them had died in the tsunami. Fukuji's wife called to him over her shoulder. I'm married now to this man. But don't you love your children? Fukuji cried out in reply. His wife paused at that and began to sob. Fukuji looked sadly at his feet for a moment, not knowing what more to say. When he looked up, the woman and the man had drifted away. So it, it finishes there. There's no real sense of, of where it goes, of exactly what the meaning of it might be. It, it's, it's kind of left completely open and it leaves you more with a, an impression than a set of answers about anything. I think that's quite characteristic of these, of these sorts of stories. Um, it's beautiful and chilling. It's a, yeah, it's a lovely story. It's a really gorgeous story. Um, mm. And, and I, I suppose one of the characters in that, the woman, although it's not directly linked to this bigger, um, this bigger trend in Japanese ghost stories that I want to briefly tell you about, um, it sort of hints at it. For some reason in Japanese ghost stories, women feature much more prominently um, than men. I think it maybe goes back to an idea in Japan, and it's actually probably quite common in the West, isn't it, that women are especially... Um, emotional and especially ruled by their emotions i should say not at all a suggestion that i'm making but it's been quite true um in japan that people have thought that way and because in japan what brings you back as a ghost or a yure is some particularly powerful emotion that was flowing inside you just before you died or at the moment that you die um women coming back are really really common and so for people that have seen the film Ringu they'll probably recognize this really common form in Japanese ghost stories which is um, a woman dressed in white which is the the white burial kimono in Japan um, with water streaming down her body out of her hair and her hair kind of tangled a kind of tangled black mess more or less hiding her face so the main character in Ringu um I should ask actually have both of you seen that film does that that film ring a bell on that character does that oh yes it's quite, quite well known isn't it yeah it's quite a well-known thing um but that 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 kind of image you can see it all over um woodblock print artwork in japan so if your listeners were to google woodblock print um who would be uh, a good example someone like utagawa um or someone like hokusai pretty soon they're going to encounter someone who looks like, like that um kind of character that i've just been talking about and lots and lots of japan's ghost stories feature um women coming back to wreak their revenge on somebody so the story i've just told you is a kind of nice calming atmospheric story but i suppose um another one really popular one and again i'll give you kind of a brief version of it in japan it's called uh, the tokaido yotsuya kaidan um and it's basically it's a story from 
what we call the, the Edo era, which is kind of early modern Japan, 1600s to 1800s. And a lot of the films people have seen in J-horror, the J-horror genre, they draw on this earlier period. So lots of things that are now films were once um, kabuki plays, right? Japan's kabuki theatre. And this, uh, this story, this Yotsuya Kaidan story, is all about um, two sisters who were wronged um, by their respective men. And in particular, one of them was given a facial cream, which was in fact a topical poison. And she smears it on her face um, and her face becomes horribly disfigured. One of her eyes starts to drop out. Her hair starts to fall out um, and she eventually dies. And when she comes back, the yure, the form she takes as a yure, is this terrifying form where her hair is falling out and her face is terribly disfigured and discolored and one of her eyes is dropping out and she comes back and torments and torments what the man who had been her husband until he eventually goes mad and out of a sense of mercy um one of the other characters in the stories ends up killing him to try to give him some kind of release from this but you can imagine, this is where i suppose in japan ghosts become not just about uh, moralizing or giving you a hint about the supernatural but it's also a form of entertainment Right. Because some of these kabuki plays, these these um, uh, this form of Japanese theater, some of the best writers um, and the best producers of these things were trying to recreate the stories with the best kind of special effects that they could um, produce. So they say, well, how can we make this person up so that they look like their face has been disfigured so that they look like they've got an eye hanging out? And then have one where this woman would be the, the ghost would be sat at her dressing table, you know, in front of a mirror combing her hair. And I suppose similarly to in the West, a scene like that of a woman in the privacy of her bedroom combing her hair, there can be what a kind of erotic charge to that. Um, but in this Kabuki play, they completely turn that around because as she she's combing her hair, somebody at the side of the stage is heaping hair onto the stage. So it looks as though as she's combing it, more and more hair is coming out and she ends up with this huge <sighs> tangled mound of ghostly hair and it's it's terrifying and people completely love it so it's, it's a kind of fear of what might happen if you treat people the wrong way coupled mm -hmm. with the thrill of entertainment um and in japan they seem to get both of those in kabuki and then in film they seem to get the balance of that really really um they seem to just do it so well because of course there's the entertainment but some of the charge i think from that entertainment comes from the idea that there might just be a grain of truth in it. You know, my God, I've treated badly in the past. How's that going to end for me at some point? The idea that, because as I said earlier on, you know, there's that sense of the world really being unknown, that you can't get away with treating someone badly, not just because it goes against your own moral code, but because the universe itself might take some kind of revenge on you. So it's quite a long answer, but I wanted to give you a, no, feel to a couple of those yeah. stories. I love those those twists at the ends of the stories. As you say, they are somewhat unresolved and surreal, uh, and, and just very different to to our experiences or to to our stories. You know, I think I think that's true. I think now and again, one of the really disappointing things in a film uh, in maybe the UK or the US or, or elsewhere is you get to the point. I don't know if you, you guys have felt this. Maybe for kind of three quarters of the way through, or a bit more, and there seems to be a kind of surprise moment or a twist or something that just leaves you thinking, "Wow!" I think. If they actually ended the film at that moment, you'd leave the cinema and you'd barely be able to think about anything else all day. You'd be going mm -hmm. back and meaning of that, what was happening, what was going to happen. But then you have often quite a disappointing, a kind of mundane final thing where everything has to be wrapped up and all the loose ends are tied up and you leave thinking, ah, okay, well, yeah, okay, fair dues. Um, but if they just 
cut the film off a tiny bit early. Do you know what I mean? Um, yes. I think in Japan they do that so well. They know they know how to they know how to do that. They are absolute experts for centuries in how to leave a story at, at just the right moment. So we actually uh, had on uh, Richard Haddam, who uh, was the screenwriter for the movie The Mothman Prophecies, and uh, in our conversation we talked a little bit about how in a traditional Western ghost story there would be a, a problem that the ghost is trying to get resolved from beyond the grave. And, mm. and then, you know, as you resolve that issue, the ghost is, you know, put to rest. And that's actually an idea that goes back all the way to ancient Greece uh, in some of the really earliest ghost stories of, of, of Western culture. But you take a movie like Ringu and it subverts that because you think – they they lead you down the the path of believing that the ghost has a a completely uh, sane uh, and mundane uh, need that's going to be resolved. You know, is looking for a proper burial or whatever. And then when you actually find out the real agenda, it completely surprises you if you're used to that. Uh... So I don't know if that was written as a response to that sort of expectation, but it, it does a great job of subverting that that uh, expectation. In, in a really dark way. And, and a lot of those, uh, you know, you talked about J-horror. There's also uh, a lot of Korean uh, ghost stories. The K-horror uh, do a good job of that as well, I think. Uh, but I, I am curious as to whether or not those are carrying forward a, a traditional uh, Asian storyline or, a, you know, something that would be culturally, you know, uh, not 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 norm, but like, like it would be a, probably be part of a cultural norm versus something that's subverting an expectation. I, I don't really, un- unfortunately, I don't know enough uh, culturally to, to know what the intent is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I think I think that is going on. I think the the big one of the big messages in, in Japanese ghost stories and in folklore is that humans always think we're much much more powerful and effective in the world than we really are. Um, and so you get story and you get 
so many folktales which show someone who's been greedy uh, about money or is overreached in terms of what their real talents might be. And the universe kind of comes back and, and slaps them down and says, it's re you're really not um, as powerful and as fabulous as you, as you think you are. Um, so I suppose one example of that might be, uh, there's a lovely line in Japanese ghost stories that involve um, snow women, or uh, yuki onna, they're called. Um, and it's, I suppose often it's it's men being put in their place um, by women. And so there's a story, for example, of, of two guys, a, a young guy and an old guy that go off um, traveling together. I think, I think they're supposed to be woodcutters. Um, and one night, uh, this kind of apparition of a kind of ice queen type apparition comes in and she kills the older man. And she sort of looks over at the younger man who's lying there absolutely terrified in his bed. And she says, you know what? You're quite handsome. I think I'm going to let you live. And a little while later, he sort of survives that and almost forgets all about it. Um, a little while later, he meets someone and they get married and they have children. They have a wonderful life. And then one night they're just chatting. And she has the I think she's in the room kind of sewing. They're just chatting. And he looks at her and says, you know what? You remind me a little bit of this time when, you know, dot, dot, dot. I was in the um, I was in this wood shed or wherever we were staying. And this Yuki Onna came and she killed this other guy. Da, 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 da. And the woman flings down her sewing and looks at him and she says, you had promised me that if I let you live, you would never talk about that with anyone again. I am that woman and I've come here to be your wife and I should really kill you for what you've done. But because we have children and because they're beautiful and I love them, I'm going to let you live. But if you ever mistreat our children, I'm going to come back and find you. And then sort of having said that, she disappears in this whirl of mist or snow and she's out of the room. And it ends oh. there. It's a, it's a gorgeous story. There are all sorts of different yeah. versions of this story across Japan. But it's, it's a man, and it is often a man who's been greedy or who's been stupid or has thought too highly of himself. And in some way, he's taught a very, very serious lesson. So the lesson is there, but the ending can often be, gosh, I wonder what happened next. Or there's a loss to the man of a of his home or his money or whatever it might be um and it's a loss that he can't recover so you've overreached you've lost something as a result and either the ending is vague or you know that you're never going to be able to recover the situation and it's that it's those sorts of endings that i'm not saying they're not there at all in, in western literature um but you don't as often encounter that um and sometimes when you first encounter it in Japan, you think, oh, well, what happened? Was it going to be this? Was it going to be that? But as you get more into it, those are the endings that you really come to appreciate, I think. And that's one of the things that, you know, Asian literature and Asian cinema, I think, really offers. They just do it so well. Mm -hmm. So uh, quick follow up. I I'm curious about uh, the sort of uh, divide between folklore ghosts or, you know, uh, urban legend type ghosts and um, what you might call um, legitimate, serious paranormal experiences. Um, are, are, is there a division there between, like, I, I know, like, there's things like uh, in America we have, well, in, in North America in general, we have, uh, like, La Lorna, uh, the, the weeping woman who's, you know, looking for her, her lost children that she killed. And then, like the in, in um, you got Resurrection Mary and the hitchhiking ghost type stories. And then I, I think specifically here, I'm thinking about things like the uh, the slit face woman uh, Japanese story uh, about the uh, the woman who's uh, wears the mask and uh, you know 
that seems like an urban legend, but I'm curious as to whether those kinds of stories, um, is there a clear delineation? Do people tell those stories, these, these sort of folkloric experiences, uh, as part of like a real thing they see, or are those pretty clearly divided, uh, in your experience between, you know, folklore and uh, authentic, I don't know, you know, first person experiences? Good question. I, I think in Japan, going back quite a long way, there's been a, a real range. So at one end, there are these really um, serious stories of if you do this, then if you do X, then Y is going to happen to you. There are these softer um, ghost stories where it's more about someone who's lost someone very close to them and they can't really they can't really escape that relationship. And so they constantly drawn back to that person in a kind of gentle, emotional, really sort of moving way. Um, and then at the other end, but it's all part of a kind of spectrum. Um, at the other end, you've got your kind of uh, blood and guts type ghost stories. And also you've got a sense of comedy with them as well. So I mean, you said like a while ago, you guys on your podcast, you, you talked about yokai, so monsters. Um, there's a series in Japan, I don't know if it was mentioned in the podcast, Yokai Watch. Um, which has become really popular, and it, and it involves a it involves a little boy who's got lots and lots of friends from a co- across the kind of Japanese folklore spectrum. All these little demons and creatures and goblins and different kinds of ghosts with different sorts of powers, um, and it's taken quite lightly. It's actually quite it's quite good fun, and some companies in Japan will use uh, these ghost or goblin like features in their marketing, and there's a lovely song a children's song my children are uh, they have their mother's japanese and they often sing um, a song about an oni which is a demon and the lyrics go um oni no pantsu ai pantsu tsuyo which is um the demon's pants are strong they're great pants they're made from a tiger's skin um, and it's just a joke and if you look at cartoons um of demons um they're really sweet creatures and they're quite funny um and you can have a lot of fun with them so there's something about japan going back a long way and certainly now they seem to manage to treat folklore um, and ghost stories and the supernatural um, with this really broad spectrum. And the stuff that kids can enjoy and that's quite funny and colourful and sweet doesn't take any of the power out of the stuff which is really serious and which can be really, really disturbing. And I think it's the ability to do all of that that's one of the things that's so impressive um, about how Japanese folklore has made it into the modern era. I'm very interested in uh, the the stories that you've been telling us about um, the strength of these female spirits and ghosts in folklore. And it seems like in some ways that it might be representative of a more matriarchal society in Japan. Uh, And you write in your article about the indigenous female shamanic tradition. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, isn't it? I suppose going back, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of years um, in Japan, the idea that women have a particular ability to channel um, the gods and the supernatural has been really, really powerful. So, I mean, right at the beginning of Japanese, or towards the beginning of Japanese mythology, you have uh, a sun goddess called Amaterasu. Um, So you have a really powerful female goddess um, right at the beginning. And there's a story where she's shut herself away in a cave. She's got upset with her brother. She's shut herself away in the cave um, and the whole world is in darkness because the sun's gone Um, and people have to try to tempt her out in some way. And one of the ways that they do it in that story um, is to dance. 
So another goddess gets up onto um, an upturned tub. She strips completely naked and she does a kind of uh, dirty, half-joking sort of dance. And everyone's cackling with laughter. And finally, that helps to persuade this female goddess to come out. And so we think that going back centuries and centuries in Japan, there's a really strong um, tradition of shamanic um, dancing as a way of trying to draw the power of the gods into yourself and then to use it to uh, predict the future, to heal people. For example, when the Japanese emperor um, was feeling especially weak for whatever reason, um, you'd have a ceremony called Chinkonsai, where lots of shamanic dancers would get together, start the dance, become possessed, and try and channel that healing power um, into the emperor, if at all they could. And there's something about that tradition, um, this tradition of female shamans that's gone all the way through. And now in Japan, there are still one or two in that original tradition um, left. And so I went to see one, when was it? It was last autumn. There's what's called Osorezan in the north of Japan, Mount Fear, basically. Um, and at the top, one of the, the gates to the underworld. So there's a really interesting thing about how Japan's different traditions come together. So at the top of that mountain, at the gateway to the underworld, you've got a Buddhist temple. And in the grounds of that Buddhist temple, once or twice a year, they let a female shaman come in and effectively meet her clients. It's interesting, the Buddhist priests that were really keen to say she is not part of Buddhism. You know, her tradition has been around a lot longer than ours has, and we're talking more than a thousand years. So we let her do this. But she's not quite part of our tradition. For most people in Japan, that doesn't matter. You know, you invest in everything. Um, but I went to see her um, and there's this queue of people up seeing her. What people would do is they would go into her tent, you know, a family at a time, and you would bring along um, a photograph of a loved one who'd recently died. You would tell the female shaman, you'd tell her how they died. You'd tell them um, when they died uh, and where they were when they died. And with all that information, with the photograph in her hand, she starts to shake these um, beads, which are a mixture of kind of wooden beads, really old coins that make a terrific rattling sound. And she starts to um, chant. And it's a mixture of Buddhist sutras and material from her own tradition. And she goes into a kind of trance. Um, and there's a moment where she starts voicing uh, the person who's died. So she calls them back from the other world. She starts voicing them and the family can ask her questions. And it's ter terrifically moving. I mean, whatever you think she's doing, you can see the family in front of her are in tears because mm -hmm. it might be someone who died quickly, can often be a child, um, someone who died quickly, unexpectedly, or without certain things in the family being resolved. And so they can ask their questions. And the shaman voicing their answer, their, their, their dead relative, can answer those questions. And um, she can reassure them that they're safe and they're settled that they feel like they've been taken care of. They're comfortable in the other world. Um, they're looking out for their family, but they're not going to come back and, and cause them any trouble. So it's fascinating to see that tradition still going now. And it's particularly yeah. the women to channel these things um, that remains really big in Japan. In what people often think of as being quite a man-centered society, it's, it's women that have that kind of ability still. Well, this is fascinating to hear about that experience that you had. And it seems to me too, you're talking about mediums and demons, riding demons, things like that, that there are some parallels between some of these belief systems with maybe African religions like voodoo and Santeria. Ah, it, it could be, certainly, especially especially the power linked to women in some of these traditions. It's, it's as though, I mean, you see this also in some of the, the Miyazaki anime films I was talking about. You, this, this trope of men um, ruining things or destroying things and women having the power to kind of channel 
nature channel the supernatural and bring everything back into balance i think that is something you see isn't it around the world for sure yeah yeah definitely it, it does remind me of that as well the uh the idea of like the being demon ridden uh you know you basically take on the aspects of the demon and in, in, in sort of voodoo possessing the demon yeah yeah, yeah. but it, but I, I it does also remind me of something i'm trying to become more uh, aware of or, or be cognizant of is uh when we talk about ghosts and we talk about demons and then we talk about them in a, in a, in a global cultural way as we're talking about different cultures, uh, we're kind of, uh, forcing them into, uh, sort of uh, buckets that maybe they aren't really supposed to be in. I, I think like, uh, of dragons, like Europeans had dragons and then there's dragons in, uh, Japan and China and in Thailand and, and, but they're very, very different. And we use the word dragon in English to talk about these things, but they're not really the same kind of creatures at all. Uh, and I'm wondering about that for demons in, in, uh, in the sort of the Judeo Christian worldview, uh, you know, demons, uh, you know, might be considered fallen angels, uh, and they're tied into this sort of, uh, monotheistic, uh, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, just a belief system. And yeah. and in other cultures, uh, demons might be just independent spirits or independent uh, agents that have their own personalities and powers, uh, and they don't really fit into that other kind of a, of, of a categorization. I'm wondering, uh, the, in, in Japan... What does a demon mean? Like, what what is that exactly? I know you talked about being possessed by a shaman, uh, or you know, like in that particular case. But do do they represent um, uh, something quite different from the Western idea of a demon? Um, so I suppose in the Japanese tradition, if it's a if it's a serious demon, because they have kind of cute demons with little horns, which are kind of miniature comedy character type figures but if it's if it's a serious demon i suppose one of the places that comes from is um the buddhist tradition you know the idea that there are all sorts of worlds beyond this one um and that depending on your karma you know you move between these different worlds and so some of these demons are are really serious business they're real repositories um of evil and you want to try to, to protect yourself from them as much as possible so one of the things in, in japanese tradition i suppose this is where buddhism and shinto really mix but to try to ward off um demons or try to ward off bad luck people used to take a great deal of care so you would have water as a purifying substance you'd have the color white one of the reasons why people are uh, you know you see in Ringu that she's buried in a white shroud it's not because white is associated with death, but because white's associated with purity. So it's a way of trying to um, protect her from all these nasties that you can become newly vulnerable to um, after you die. So I think it's something that people seriously worry about. But the, one of the differences might be uh, with the West that it isn't humanity isn't quite so central, I think, in the Japanese worldview. You know, in a Christian worldview, it's really all about um, humanity uh, falling redeeming itself and the kingdom of heaven uh finally arriving at some point but it's all a drama that circles around humanity um in a lot of japanese traditions humanity is just one uh element of reality competing with a sort of a vast array of other creatures and the thing that i suppose really got me about 
Japanese tradition and that really genuinely disturbed me was that in the Japanese worldview, or in some of the ones that I'd encountered, um, things won't necessarily be all right in the end. Because this isn't a universe in which humanity is central um, and is loved and is looked after. Actually, it's a lot more complex than that. It's unknowable and it may not go the way that we hope. So once you know that that's at the basis of things, then suddenly demons are a lot more frightening um, because they can really do you harm that you might not recover from. And ghosts in general have that extra charge because there's no one there who's necessarily going to protect you from them. You know what I mean? It has that, that element of seriousness and that element of humanity kind of fighting for survival amongst this whole array of other creatures that don't necessarily feel all that warmly about us. That was that's what really, for me, had the powerful, disturbing charge, you know, in some of these Japanese ghost stories is that things may not actually be all right in the end. And that's a really, um, that can be quite a, yeah. a realistic worldview in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder. It probably is, but I wonder whether some of us who are brought up in a Christian culture, whether we're Christians or not, we sort of have a sense somewhere deep down that, you know, even if things are terrible now, there's an arc about life or about, you know, the universe in general where things may just tend towards the good in the end, even though it looks like a, it's a very wide arc and you might not see it going that way. Um, you might have yeah. a in the end, it'll be all right. Um, but when you're yeah. told actually that's really not true, then that, that really does get you, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> well, definitely in Australia, we have a, a common saying, she'll be right, mate. So everything will be fine in the end. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I think it's just really interesting, the, the Catholic upbringing that you've had, it seems to have really given you a great base to be able to compare and contrast uh, beliefs and practices in uh, Catholicism and in the, the Western culture as opposed to Eastern beliefs and practices. I th yeah, I think, it, yeah, you're right. It gives you that background and also gives you that, sense of in of investment of the sense that there's something real here beyond kind of you know stories or aesthetics or theater or films that there's something in there that's really worth trying to understand and one of the things i really love about the way the japanese approach this or have in the past generally is um never expect to find yourself an answer you know the best you can hope for really in an unknowable world is a a combination of of partial answers and then be satisfied with a, a, a true lingering sense of mystery about the world. You know, don't try and answer every single question because you can't possibly do that. I think there's something about that that's, you know, it, it's realistic and it's modest, um, but it also it also carries a really strong um, emotional impression to it. You think, actually, yeah, that's probably true. It doesn't mean you give up asking any questions or you give up being interested or give up being, you know, sceptical, um, yeah. but that you inquire with the sense that we're only ever going to get a, a certain amount of the way here. And it adds, it kind of re-enchants the world a little bit as well. For those of us who who feel that, you know, a, a purely scientific materialist look at things kind of doesn't do it for you emotionally or kind of doesn't get deep enough for you. Um, then there's something in Japan that answers that, I think. Is there something <laughs> that we could put in the show notes? Is, are there any good collections of uh, well-translated stories that we could uh, share with listeners who want to like get more immersed in these kind of tales. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a couple that I might suggest. One um, would be a guy called Lafcadio Hearn. Um, in 1904, he published this. It's available for free um, on sites like archive.org or Project Gutenberg, um, and it's called Kwaidan. K W 
A-I-D-A-N. And it just means kind of strange stories, basically. So he translated a few, including that story about the, the Yukiana, the snow woman, you know, who disappears off in a, um, a flurry at the end of the story. This was made into a movie of some of these stories? Um, yes, quite. Um, I think they've made countless films based on that collection. Okay. That original was, um, yeah, it was 1904. You can definitely have a look um, at that. That might be of interest to people. Um, the other one, I wonder if it's there for free or not. I'm not sure. Um, but it's it's a, it's a collection of stories from that Tono region that I mentioned. You know, that story of Fukuji and the tsunami. That's one of that story 99 in this collection. Um, and it's called Legends of Tono, T-O-N-O. And it's by a folklore, it's collected by a folklorist called Yanagita Kunio. So people could have a little look for that. They might find a copy of that for free out there, but that's certainly um, worth a look. Cool. I'll, put, I'll see and, if I can put those in the show notes as well. That'll be. Yeah. And what yeah. about your own works, Chris? Uh, you've written a book. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and other projects that you might be working on? Um, yeah, I, I could tell you briefly about that. Just thinking, just before I do, there's one other book I wanted to kind of recommend to people um, by a guy called Zach Davison, D-A-V-I-S-S-O-N. He wrote a wonderful book, Yurei, the Japanese Ghost. And it kind of feels, it's, it's you know, it's a lot about what we've been talking about already with the cultural background and how it fits into Japanese religious beliefs. Um, that's kind of a nice one-stop shop for all this if you wanted to um, have a look at it. I don't know him, so I'm not trying to you know, do him a favor or sell his book for him, so I'd recommend it. Um, well, let's sell some of your books. <laughs> really kind um i suppose there's there's a couple of things i'm doing at the moment one is a book that's finished and it's just about to come out called japan's story in search of a nation 1850 to the present so it's kind of a cultural history of japan all the way from the opening up to the west uh in the 1850s all the way down to the present day and it i try to cover all sorts of different areas of japanese life and it includes um ghost stories. It includes actually that Fukuji story um, that I told, and it talks about film as well. So it tries to weave all these different elements of Japanese culture together. So that if you're interested just in ghosts or just in literature or just in film, you can hopefully see where that fits, you know, in the, uh, in the, in the full story. One of the things in the book, and one of the things that's really interesting about Japanese ghosts is how they make it into the modern era. So you have ghosts suddenly appearing out of telephone boxes or in the case of Lingu from a VN. The advent of technology in the modern world, that just gets included in this fabulous storytelling tradition. It doesn't kill it off and it doesn't make people kind of overly cynical or ironic about it, which I think is a great achievement. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. Um, other thing, really briefly, is we, I'm working on a little piece for a, a, a newspaper here called The Daily Telegraph. I think it's going to be published in time for Halloween this year, but it's about the ghosts tradition of Japan as it appears in art. So I think that's the 27th of October it's coming out. You can probably see it online, but it's going to feature all these beautiful art pieces that first, Great. you know, got me. So by all means, have a look out for that. Yeah, we'll try and link to that too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Here, here's a question. I know, we, we, you know, as a skeptical podcast, we spend a lot of time asking questions about are these things real? Are they not real? But um, here's... If if you're being uh, pestered by a ghost in Japan, uh, mm. is there a uh, is there a what, what sort of arsenal of, of defenses does a person have? How can you protect yourself? Someone from has a... to kill you. He told us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, other than that, what else can we do to protect ourselves from Japanese ghosts? Okay, so I, I give you really briefly three or four ways. For some people now. Obviously, they would go to see a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist and they would say, is there something going on um, in my mind? 
you know, they would say, you know, I'm hearing voices or I'm feeling things or I'm seeing things. They would say, is this within your remit, basically? Can you sort me out? I guess that would be one way. Um, another way for people who are, uh, have their doubts about where all this is coming from, um, they might try to get some help in listening to what the ghost is trying to say, because the tradition has always been that there's a reason why people aren't settled, their spirits aren't settled, and why they come back. And this probably you know, ties up a little bit with the Western tradition as well. If you can find out what it is that was left unfinished, what it is that had upset somebody, and you can somehow put that right, you may find that that's enough um, to have this, people, uh, this person go back to where they were. Um, and then there are two more, and I'll be pretty brief for you, because I know we've uh, been talking for a little while. Um, one would be in the Shinto tradition, this is a little bit like a crucifix or garlic, I suppose. You can have a, a piece of wood or a piece of cloth on which is written the name of um, a kami or a god. It might just be the name or it might be a prayer to that god. Um, that can be used as a kind of amulet to ward these things off. I think, to be honest, there are very few people in Japan. Lots of people would use these, these amulets, but they wouldn't necessarily literally think they're warding off a ghost. It's really hard to know, actually. But that would be number three. Fourth, and maybe most dramatically in the Buddhist tradition, there is such a thing as Buddhist exorcism. And I met a priest, a Buddhist priest, who'd been helping people in the aftermath of the 2011 disaster. And there had been one man he knew, really interesting story, of a guy he knew who had gone onto the beach where lots of people had died, where the wave had come crashing in. He'd gone onto the beach eating an ice cream not long after this disaster. And, you know, as soon as I say that, you can feel how wrong that is, right? The kind of the little outing to go along ha 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 licking your ice cream um, mm. and he'd been tormented after that and possessed um, and the priest said do you know how wrong that was to be eating that ice cream and he tried to make the person see what he had done he performed all these exorcist rituals at the same time you know with the water and the sutras and all the rest and then he said go and find something you can do to help the families of the people who've died make that your mission now and so a combination of those three, three things, reflect on what you've done, go through the exorcism ceremony, and then go and do something for the families of the people who died and the people that you really insulted by eating your ice cream. Um, the guy gradually was cured. So there you go. That would be number four. Wow. Neat. <laughs> Definitely, again, some parallels, I think, to, to voodoo when you were just talking about an amulet. Uh, I don't know if they have talismans as well to attract good luck. I, I guess that would be a, a feature of some Asian cultures. They, they, they do. And one of the things, you know, I've asked the question countless times um, of friends, family, people I've met in Japan. Well, what do you actually think is going on if you carry around an amulet in your bag or um, dangling from a chain on your mobile phone, which you'll see lots of people do? When children first start to go to school in Japan, their parents might tie something onto their school bag as they're as they're heading off. I said, but what, what do you think you're actually protecting yourself from? Um, and people... It used to frustrate me. People didn't have a clear answer. I thought, you know, you're sitting on the fence. It must be this. It must be that. But you can't really express what it is that's going on. It's a kind of sense or a feeling about the world that we don't really know what's going on, what might happen, whether it's, as it were, a kind of a here and now traffic accident or, or something from elsewhere. So what you do is in an uncertain world, you cover your bases, that it's a very to do. And what you don't do is you is, is think that you know it all. That's a terrible mistake. It's a kind of cardinal sin uh, in Japan to think that you might know it all. As I say, that's reserved for um, scary cults like the Om Shinrikyo cult that released sarin gas on the Tokyo Underground in 1995. Um, those small groups that offer certainty are 
to Japanese people as terrifying as any ghost, I would say. So interesting. Well, yeah, they were very terrifying. In fact, they just actually finally got around to executing uh, the leader of, of Ocean Rikyo, right? They did, yeah. Earlier this year, they hung him and a number of the other um, leaders. And I suppose the scary thing for me there, actually, was was how little people in Japan were disturbed uh, by that. You know, they mm. still the fact they still have the death penalty in Japan and also that it's still relatively rarely used, but that they had a, a hanging on quite that scale is really quite something. But people were so scared and disgusted, both by what they did and what a group like that represents you know that claim to certainty and that willing to impose your certainty so violently on somebody else really really goes against the grain of how people understand life in japan oh, and so the fact yeah you know the fact that you had to see the back of them um slightly surprised me but it also made sense you know if you understand the way people look at cults like that and why they're so wrong I- well it, i i would say this about ocean Rikio, the the uh uh, up until I read about that cult, like I, I really enjoyed James Bond movies, but I always thought that the uh, like the the villains were over the top. Like uh, nobody would ever do that. That's ridiculous, you know. And then they came along, and it's like, oh well, I guess here's your uh, exception that proves the rule, right? I mean, wow, they were as close to a Bond villain group as ever walked the earth, as near as I could tell. So yeah, complete with their compound and hiding a helicopter away there and you know living in a mountain some of them absolutely yeah completely yes. terrifying i think the, the scary thing in japan was that they'd been allowed to exist for that long and no one had known about them yeah that's kind of part of it you know you don't necessarily know what the person next door is getting up to but to be honest actually that's quite a, just maybe one more quick reading for um listeners who might be interested in modern uh, ghost stories or stories of the strange in japan there's a japanese a writer called Edogawa Rampo. He got his name, you can probably tell, but Edogawa is what E-D-O-G-A-W-A and Rampo is R-A-N-P-O. Um, and it means something in Japanese, but he got his name from Edgar Allan Poe, Edogawa ah. Rampo. Can you? Ah, yeah. ah yes. Um, so he, he took his name from there and he wrote all these wonderful short stories and a lot of them play on the idea. They're not ghostly but they are strange and weird and disturbing and they play on the idea you know he's writing in the 1920s and 1930s that because you've got all these people suddenly coming into a big city like tokyo from the countryside you don't know who your neighbors might be and so playing on the fear of what the man or woman next door might be up to and the harm that they might intend for you um is a really fruitful and very creepy theme so I'd suggest listeners to your podcast, if they want to have a modern take on this kind of strange t- storytelling, Edogawa Rampo is a great guy to read. There's plenty of stuff in um, in translation by him. A particular story, which I won't tell you, but people can uh, look at, the, the Human Chair, I think is a wonderfully creepy story. Thoroughly recommend that. Oh, I know this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do? Yeah, yeah. No spoilers, but yeah, yeah, I do. Thanks to the uh, cool. HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, they covered it in some of their extended material. So, oh. story. <laughs> no, I, I thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is very creepy, but yeah, and, and surprising. It's it's very unusual. But yeah, I'll put a link to. I don't. I don't know if there's an online version of that around, but I'll uh, I'll put a link to as much of that as I can in the show notes. Lovely. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. And Chris, we've just got one final question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favourite monster? My favourite monster? That's a fabulous one. Um, (laughs) I think my favourite monster is um, the Oni. 
as in the children's Oni, because they are um, they're supposed to be scary, but in fact they're playmates and they're companions and they're funny. They help you out if you're being bullied. They look out for you and they take care of your enemies. And as I say, there's that fabulous song um, all about the Oni's pants being fantastic. I think it's a really lovely example of how Japan manages to have a sense of humour about things that really are quite serious at the same time. So I would go for Oni. And if you can have a link in the show notes for people online, I'm sure there's a version of uh, that children's song, Oni no Pants. I thoroughly recommend people have a listen to that. Okay. That's an answer we've never had before, too. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for talking with yes. us. Yes. Really interesting. That was fascinating. Very different. Oh, I'm glad. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Chris Harding about Yurai, the ghosts of Japan. A lot of interesting links related to this interview will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. If you like podcasts and you like science, come on, baby, listen to us. Oh my god, is that good? <laughs> yeah, that was that was epic. Listen to the Mad Scientist podcast on all of your iTunes and other listening things. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host Marie Mayhew, and we sing, we sing, we sing a lot. We sing for science. Yes. We talk about science. We talk about history. We talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and things. And it's a lot of yeah. fun. So come learn about yes. ghosts and UFOs and physics and chemistry and a little bit of biology. And about economic collapse. On the Mad Scientist Podcast. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences 
where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.